Y'all, I am uh, greatly humbled this morning to be once again preaching the Word of God. Uh, it has been a couple months since I've really preached the Word, and uh, for good reason. I thought about starting an entirely new book, and then I thought about simply continuing in 1 Corinthians where I left off at our previous uh, pulpit, but I think we need some explanation this morning as to where we are in 1 Corinthians because we are in a new place, and I know uh, everyone in this room, I think, has kept up with 1 Corinthians, Um, but just so those watching know, this will be the first video that shows up, the first sermon video that shows up on, on the church website and on Facebook and in our little faith life community and on and on YouTube. So I, I want to explain some background to 1 Corinthians before we dive in. And uh, 1 Corinthians is no easy book of Scripture to walk through. It's one of the more convicting books, letters within the text of Scripture to walk through. Uh, Paul is having to admonish the church in Corinth because there is division in the church at Corinth. No one here knows what church division is like right? I was talking to a guy the other day who, uh, uh, you know, the claim is, I'm not very religious, that's why I don't really want anything to do with church, and part, part, of, the, part of the reason is there's just so much dang drama and so much dang church division, um, and it seems to be a church thing, um, but I think if we zoomed out and looked at humanity as a whole, it's not a problem only in the church, it's a problem in families, yeah. It's a problem in workplaces. No matter which denomination you choose, there seems to be division. There is division in cities and counties and states and nations. Look at our own nation right now. Um, as many people who aren't in church, there's still all this division. So church isn't the, the cause. And I think Paul agrees through First Corinthians that the cause is just human nature. You get any group of people together who are living in the flesh, who are living worldly lives, have worldly focuses, uh, have their attention on worldly things and selfish desires, there will be division. Paul is addressing that division. He got at it early on. Here's, Here's how you overcome the division in your ranks. Here's how you live in unity with other people. The world wants to hear how to live in unity, but it doesn't want to hear the method that I am about to present. Here it is. Are you ready? Become more mature in the faith. Know the deep things of God and stop caring so dang much about your own preferences and your own expectations. Then there will be peace on earth and there will be unity in your local churches. Follow Christ, not self. That is the method Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians. I, I believe him. I believe that in order to achieve unity, not only in the church, but in the world, Christ's kingdom must come, and people must be about God's business rather than their own. To do this, we need to know the things of God. When we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, of course, in chapters 1 through 7, Paul addresses all sorts of things that are dividing the church from 
sexual immorality within the church to people just being offended and holding that against other people. He, he addresses those things. Before we get to chapter 8, and in verses 1 through 3 of 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul makes this claim. Knowledge, he's been, he's been admonishing the church toward knowledge up to this point. But then he says, knowledge puffs up and love edifies. So there's a warning here, even, even when it comes to seeking knowledge and seeking great understanding. And you can look around in the world today, this is commonsensical, um, and maybe we don't notice it until somebody points it, points it out, right? If we are wrapped up in our knowledge, and we just happen to be more intelligent than the next guy, no more than the next guy, and that's what we focus on is our knowledge and how we are more knowledgeable, whether it comes to, to theology or science or philosophy or mathematics or experience or the how-to knowledge, like how to do certain things. You can do things better than other people or the certain type of, of knowledge that comes with with age or with education or with success or with money. There are different types of knowledge that come with all of those things. And Paul doesn't qualify what type of knowledge he's talking about. We're going to learn in verses 4 through 13. But knowledge in any form can puff us up because we start to think we're better than the next guy. And then the, the next guy who doesn't have the knowledge or the experience that we have not is not as old as we are, isn't as trained theologically or just plain logically, can't think critically as well as we can or can't do stuff as well as we can or can't figure it out that easily. All of a sudden they feel inferior, right? So knowledge puffs up. But then Paul says love edifies. And I don't think knowledge is bad. Through 1 Corinthians so far, chapters 1 through 7, Paul has been admonishing the church toward greater knowledge, greater maturity in the faith, a depth of knowledge of godly things. But then he warns us, knowledge puffs up, love edifies. So there is a difference between knowledge and love, but I really think they go hand in hand, and we're going to see this in verses 4 through 13. Love edifying means that we don't, we don't think others to be inferior because they lack knowledge. It means instead we pour our knowledge into them so that they are lifted up. And this, I think, makes Christianity different from almost any other worldview because any other worldview is concerned about rank, status, reputation, right? Anybody who holds to any sort of heathen way of thinking or godless way of thinking, is concerned about rank and status and reputation. And those things become idols, such that I need to make sure I promote myself and I look better than the next guy, right? Whereas love seeks to, if we really do have more knowledge than the next guy, seeks to bring that person up with us. And this is the foundation on which Paul begins talking about meat sacrificed to idols. This is religious knowledge that he is talking about. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4 through 13. 
Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, therefore, because knowledge puffs up, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies, therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat it, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, you have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple. Will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The brother, for whose sake Christ died. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. And the big idea presented here, and people use this passage to say all kinds of things, usually getting to this main point. It is important to live life in such a way where you're not purposefully offending your brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think that's a good place to start. But I really think it's kind of a shallow way to see this passage of Scripture. When a new employee comes onto a job site, no experience whatsoever doing that kind of work, and the foreman just expects him to catch on. The foreman goes about doing all of the work, but never teaching the new employee, never raising him up, never training him, never discipling him to do the work that he has started. The foreman just goes about working. I wonder if any new employees would ever be trained enough to stay at that job very long. Probably not. The foreman instead throws around his weight, throws around his knowledge. He is puffed up. And the new employee is never raised up to do well. When we all know, even according to a worldly standard, a new employee comes onto the job site, comes onto the workforce, if he is trained and enables the foreman to make more money, to become even more of a success because he has good men working for him who have been trained, who can do the work and aren't left behind. We recognize this when it comes to worldly systems. But we do not recognize this in the church. Instead in the church, and this, this is one of the things I really want to combat as we begin Douglas Reformed Church and as we're doing our work in Wilcox, 
I really want to combat this top-down mentality where the preacher standing in front of the congregation is the only qualified saint in the congregation and he sees as his objective to speak profundities, to be profound, to hammer people with his knowledge of Scripture and his expertise in the pulpit, his orations, instead of being a servant who is interested through the sermon to edify, to raise people up, so that he is not the only one doing the work of ministry, so that he is not the only one who is capable of presenting the Word of God from Sunday to Sunday, and so that the entire congregation is, is raised up. You see, I think that this lead pastor model of doing church is completely against passages of Scripture like this that tell us to edify one another. Like Ephesians chapter 4, where we read that God has given evangelists and pastor-teachers, right? Theologians in the church, pastor-teachers, to train the saints, equip them for every good work so that they are lacking in nothing. See, he is not to be interested in being better than everyone else or being more intelligent than everyone else. He should probably know more because he's got to teach people, right? Which means he needs to be a forever student of the Bible, whether that's formal or informal, right? But he has to be interested in raising others up so that we all enter the kingdom of heaven together. And this isn't a race that we run alone. In fact, I... I feel weird calling it a race. I know Hebrews, you know, chapter 4, calls it a race. I run the race. And Paul said that when he finishes the race, he, he wants to run as if one who, who is racing for a crown. I understand that, but we don't race alone. This is a team marathon. And when one man gets tired or burned out, we bear one another's burdens and we carry one another along to the finish line. And Paul here, he is rebuking those who are arrogant in their knowledge. And he is calling the church to be a church full of people who edify one another. Let's begin walking through here, starting in verse 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols. Now, in the first century, in pagan temples, there would be meat sacrificed to idols, and this meat would be sold in the marketplace. And apparently, you know, we can kind of use our inductive reasoning here to see what was going on in Corinth at this time. Apparently, there was a question that arose in the church at Corinth, and Chloe's people, who most likely sent Paul, the letter that we don't have from Corinth, asked this question, most likely, about eating meat sacrificed to idols. Is that, is that okay? Sacrificing to an idol doesn't change the meat itself. And there's this argument that has arisen in our congregation. Is, 
Is it okay for us to go to the marketplace and buy meat sacrificed to idols? What if, what if we see one of our people at the bar? I mean, what if, we see, what if we see one of our people in one of those temples eating this meat that was sacrificed? Do we need to practice church discipline? Do we need to exile them? Do, are we to have anything to do with it? Are they worshiping other gods? This is the question Paul is answering. We have some questions kind of like this in our day. Are we allowed to sing songs by that band? Huh? Are we allowed to go to, to that place? Should we be seen around that type of person? Are Christians allowed now to have jobs at a clerk's office if the state is handing out certain types of marriage licenses? And maybe they might have to sign something. Are bakers allowed to work in that industry if they are required to bake cakes with certain types of decorations on them for certain occasions? We have questions like this. If the government becomes entirely rebellious against God, can any Christian work for the government? We have questions like this. Questions that are very relevant to us. When we we dive into a passage like this, it's about meat sacrificed to idols. We shouldn't just brush it off and say, ah, we don't really have that problem in America. We do. We're just not talking about eating meat. We're talking about a plethora of other things. I'm glad Paul answers this for us. Concerning meat sacrificed to idols, we know... Paul said knowledge puffs up, yet he has knowledge. Okay, so knowledge is not, not bad. He says, we know this. Let me explain this to you. We know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world. Now, wait, wait a minute. We talk about idols all the time. Well, the Ten Commandments tell us not to worship idols. We see Baals and the Ashtoreths in, in the Old Testament. We have religions like Hinduism in the world today where there are many idols that people set on their little altars and they, they pray to them, they worship them, they burn incense to them. Roman Catholics worship saints and angels, idols. What does Paul mean here when he says, we know that there are no idols? What he means is that whatever someone sets up as an idol, a Baal, or an Ashtoreth, or a Ra, or Saint Gregory, or Michael, the archangel, whatever someone sets up as an idol is not actually a god that can be worshipped. That person's worship is towards something that isn't. That's what Paul is getting at here. There's actually no such thing as that. Whatever thing it is behind that, that, little, that little image, that icon that people set up and call it an idol. There's no power behind that. There's no name of any God behind that. There is only one God. They are worshiping something that is empty. We know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world. 
These things don't really exist. People have invented them. And that there is no God but one. Here we get to peer into Paul's monotheism. The fact that he recognizes one, one creator God. And even with this Hellenistic Greek philosophical background, Paul is saying, yeah, those, those other gods, they don't even exist. People are worshiping non-existent things. We know we have this knowledge. They don't have this knowledge, but we know, and this knowledge is a good thing, even if it can puff up, right? Even if it can make arrogant. We have this knowledge. There is only one God. So we know that they are worshiping nothing. And this is the the first premise of Paul's argument here. Whatever's going on at the pagan temples, it's empty, void of power, void of presence, void of divinity, void of any worship of any real thing. The meat being sacrificed in these temples is being sacrificed to nothing, no one. We know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called idols, even if there are, Paul enters a hypothetical here, even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Here Paul doesn't qualify or clarify what I think he's getting at is if indeed there are many gods and many lords in the minds of men, because he's already said they don't really exist, right? So in the minds of men, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all. We know this. One God. This is our theology. This is our confession. So, so coming just logically from the belief that there is only one God, that necessitates the belief that there are no others and that every other worship to any other supposed God or being or Lord is empty and that it is to nothing. Any sacrifice being made to anything or any one other than the one God we believe in, it's, it's empty. It's being offered to no one, nothing. If we follow our belief in one God to its logical conclusion, then we necessarily believe all worship, all sacrifice to anything else is to nothing. This is what Paul is getting at. And you can kind of sense this Hellenistic philosophy coming through here. For us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things and we exist for Him. And... One Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. This strikes me. Does this strike? I wonder if this strikes you the same way it strikes me, because Paul almost seems like he's saying the Father is God over here, and Jesus is Lord over here, separating the two out as if Jesus isn't God, and the Father isn't Lord. Does this strike anyone here? These words can be difficult to deal with. This 
type of verse, verses like this, passages like this that separate the two out and and distinguish them as different persons, they caused great controversies in the early church about Trinitarian thought. But I want to point something out to you here because I don't think Paul is separating them entirely. I think he's pointing out the fact that they are two persons. And I think we have clues here in the text to show us that there is only one God, one essence, and that the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ, are both persons of the one essence, God, who is not a separate entity, but is, but is God consisting of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all at once, all the time. Look at this. Yet for us, in verse 6, there is but one God, the Father. And look at how he defines who the Father is. Look at the work he ascribes to the Father, the work that executes on the Father, the first person of the Trinity, from whom are all things. He distinguishes the Father by saying all things are from, from him. And then look to to the Lord Jesus Christ and how he distinguishes Christ from the Father here. One Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things. So in this verse of Scripture, we have all things from the Father by Jesus Christ. Now tell me, if all things are from the Father by Jesus Christ, is there ever a moment, ever one work of creation or sanctification that could possibly be done if Jesus Christ were ever separated entirely from the Father? No. In the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God, we assume that Moses means the Father there when he says God. God created the heavens and the earth. And he said, this is word, he said, let there be light. John chapter 1, John identifies Jesus as the word through whom all things are and without whom nothing was made that was made. And here Paul is getting at the same, all things from the Father, all things by Christ. The Father willed it, the Son revealed it. This is how the relationship works. Those are the deeds that execute on the Father and the Son. Everything originates with the Father. Scripture tells us even the Son originates in some way with the Father, though He doesn't have a beginning, right? He's eternally generated by the Father, and He is the Father's Word, so He does the revealing work of the Father. So so everything originates with the Father. That work executes on the Father. It is appropriated to the Father in Scripture. And then there is the Son, Jesus Christ, The one who reveals. Every time something is revealed, every time we see a theophany in the Old Testament, every time the the Word of God comes to a prophet or an apostle, it's Christ. It's Christ revealing. That's the work that executes on Christ. The Father willed from the beginning to save and elect people for Himself, and Christ revealed that, accomplished it, fulfilled it on the cross in His incarnation when He condescended to humankind. That work executes on Christ. The, the will executed on the Father. The electing of God's people executed on 
the Father. And then the Holy Spirit, though Paul doesn't mention the Holy Spirit here, there are certain works that execute on the Holy Spirit, the, the making effective of the work Christ does by the will of the Father. The work that is from the Father and by Christ is through the Spirit, even though Paul doesn't mention that here. That's how the relationships work. And so Christ accomplishes the salvation of the saints, and the Holy Spirit comes into the saints and draws the saints to Christ, and Christ is exalted, and the Father is glorified. This is Paul's theology. So when he says there is one God, the Father, and one Lord Jesus Christ, he's not putting a wall between them and saying they are two different entities altogether, but he is distinguishing between two different persons of the Godhead by the work that they do in this universe, in space-time, even though there is but one God. So Paul is a monotheist, not a tritheist. He is a Trinitarian monotheist, believes in one God, three persons. This is the Christian faith, and this is the way God describes himself from from Genesis 1, when he speaks the world into existence and has his spirit hovering over the surface of all the waters of the earth simultaneously, so there's omnipresence there. Like, that's amazing. Then we get to chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sin against God, and it's not the Father walking through the garden in the cool of the day, because he transcends, right? He's the one who wills. It's literally translated, they heard the voice of God walking through the garden in the cool of the day. It's the Word, Jesus. And throughout the Old Testament, you see the Theophanies, and in the New Testament, you see it clearly explained. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now look at this other way that Paul distinguishes the Father and the Son here in verse 6. From whom are all things, this is the Father, and we exist for Him. We exist for the Father. Did you catch that? We do not exist for ourselves. The Father does not exist for us. We exist for Him. He created us for Himself. And the only reason He gives Himself to us in Christ is because He has something that he's working out for himself. He is the sovereign here, and he is the God here. His will be done, not ours. We exist for him. And one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. So we exist for the Father. We exist through Christ. That means Christ is the one who sustains us. Christ is the one that enables us to breathe. If Christ were to pull back his hand, we would fall dead to the ground. But Christ keeps us breathing, and Christ keeps us meeting. Christ keeps us thinking and reasoning and struggling, and Christ keeps us in tribulation, and he keeps us um, per- persevering and, and, he, and he gives us endurance. Why? For the Father. Because somehow this brings glory to the Father. And so we exist for the Father through Christ. 
Man, Paul has a robust understanding of Trinitarian work that I want to grasp a hold of. And doubtless we will continue to see more as we work through 1 Corinthians and the rest of the Bible. Verse 7, However, not all men have this knowledge. Well, no wonder. That's kind of complicated, Paul. That little statement about the Trinity. But I don't think Paul is referring to the Trinity when he refers to this knowledge. I think he's simply referring to the fact that we have one God and idols don't really exist. He said not all people have come to that understanding. Not all people have this knowledge. That's why they're bogged down by idols. That's why they're offended when they see people sacrificing to idols who aren't Christians. That's why, that's why they're, they're all bent out of shape when they see people in certain places. When they see people at the bar, this is why they're bent all out of shape. They haven't come to this understanding. When they see people eating in temples where meat has been sacrificed to idols, this is why they're all bent out of shape because they don't have this understanding. Not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol until now. So this idol doesn't exist, but they've been taught that it does. And they've heard from the world that things sacrificed to this idol are really being sacrificed to another god. They have heard that that music is terrible to sing, even if it's theologically sound because of the name of a band that's attached to it. Now, if a song's not theologically sound, we shouldn't sing it, right? Uh, that's, that seems to be pretty obvious, at least not in a church setting. But if the song is theologically sound, it's attached to the name of a band that is part of a terrible church and a church that's not theologically sound, I think this applies here. We've been accustomed, especially in the Reformed community, we've been accustomed to hearing, nope, don't sing that, and it gets really legalistic, right? No, don't drink that, don't taste, don't touch. This is Colossians chapter 2. Don't taste, don't touch. Those are the commands of men. Those actually don't benefit you at all. But we get accustomed to these things and we think we're purer, holier, more pious, better Christians if we stay away from it. And if, oops, I accidentally ate meat sacrificed to an idol, I accidentally heard a song on the radio that had a cuss word in it. I accidentally saw something on TV when a commercial was on and now I'm questioning my salvation. That is a sign of immature Christianity. Remember, Paul here is he's admonishing those who are immature in the faith. Those who don't have this knowledge, and I think we should add the qualifier yet, because the goal is that, hey, I want you to have this knowledge. Paul is sharing this knowledge so that the people who don't have this knowledge receive this knowledge and are built up and experience the freedom that we have in Christ, Christian liberty. Not all men have this knowledge, some being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, even though that's impossible. No matter how it's cooked, that's impossible, right? And their conscience being weak is defile. Matthew Chapter 11, verses 18 through 19. Jesus presents a certain scenario. It's not a parable. It's really the way things were. John, the baptizer, took a Nazarite vow. You can see that Nazarite vow in Numbers chapter 6. And he lived his life abstaining 
from grapes and from wine. He did this because he took a vow before God, not because it made him more holy. He took a vow probably as part of a group called the Essenes, who had as their mantra, we're here to prepare the way for the Messiah. So he took this vow. He took it as an act of worship to God, and he spent his whole life abstaining from things that other Jews enjoyed, grapes, wine. But the Son of Man, Jesus, he came eating and drinking. Jesus didn't take a Nazarite vow. He ate grapes. He enjoyed wine. And they said John was demon-possessed because who lives life not enjoying a glass of wine? All right? They said, you are demon-possessed, boy. How can, how can you live your whole life under a Nazarite vow, which is supposed to be temporary and not... You, didn't, you haven't messed up even once your whole life? John probably didn't, right? So they said he was demon-possessed. And then here comes Jesus, eating and drinking and having a good time with joy. And they call him a glutton and a drunkard. But how do you please a person like that? You, you don't, right? Offended by every little thing they believe to be sin. Now, neither John nor Jesus were living in sin, okay? Now, John might have had a season in his life when he lived in sin, probably. I don't know. Uh, actually, no, he had the spirit from in the womb, didn't he? So, uh, John... Probably never lived in sin. Jesus definitely didn't live in sin any part of his life, right? He's God and, and flesh incarnate. And here they are like, no. You're demon-possessed. You're a glutton and a drunkard. We want nothing to do with either of you. They were preaching the same message. That's probably why, right? They revealed how immature they were in the things of God, how much understanding they lacked, how, according to Paul's words, how weak their consciences were. And when they saw John the baptizer and the way he did ministry, and when they saw Jesus, the way he did ministry, their consciences were defiled, not because their consciences were correct, but because they were offended by things they were taught were sin, and those things were not sin. The culture has quite the sway on us, and the way people grow up in church has quite the sway on them. But Jesus, Obviously, he didn't think the Pharisees were saved because he didn't honor their convictions in that moment, right? He condemned them. In fact, we get to later on in Matthew's Gospel, and Jesus is condemning the Pharisees to hell because they lack understanding. Understanding, I think, that can only be provoked in us by the Holy Spirit. Paul here writes, but if you have a weak brother 
honor that conviction, right? But at the same time, try to edify them, raise them up. Listen to Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world. So if we're in Christ, the principles of the world, of worldly religion, of worldly society, of worldly culture, no longer have anything to do with us. We are removed from that. We are dead to that. Why? As if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men, not God, men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body. You look pious to the world when you do that. But they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. The only thing that's of value, and Paul gets at this in Colossians, is heart change, becoming mature in the faith, growth in knowledge, which can puff up, but it doesn't have to. So their conscience being weak is defiled. And then Paul admonishes the weak brothers and sisters in the faith, those who are immature. He admonishes them saying, but food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. And I imagine that works the other way too, right? We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if, if we... Uh, we are neither the worse if we do eat, neither the better if we do not eat. Right? Paul is saying that it doesn't matter to God. Now that's interesting, isn't it? What matters is not your heart, your, your, your outward action, but your heart. What matters is not your perceived pious or religiosity, whether you meet the expectations of people, the doctrines of, of man, believe those, those, those don't matter. What matters is your relationship with, with Christ. And we know that Paul doesn't want to leave the weaker brother where the weaker brother is, or sister, because he's admonishing them come to this understanding. Gain this knowledge. Weakness causes division. This isn't weakness according to the world's definition of weakness. This is having a weak conscience. Right? So we remember Pinocchio. What's his name? Jiminy Cricket. Is that his name? Yeah? Let your conscience be your guide. Bad idea. (laughs) Our consciences are flaky unless they are redeemed by Christ. And so we, through the study of Scripture, through our coming together as a local church, our admonishing one another, our encouraging one another, our correcting one another, our rebuking one another, our training one another, training one another in righteousness. 
with the words that God gave us, our consciences are strengthened. And without the church gathering the way God has designed it to be, yes, admonishing and all, our consciences will never be strengthened. We will always be flaky people who flake for people. And we will never stand firm on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Starting in verse 9, after admonishing those who have weak consciences, those who know not Christian liberty but are still trapped by some degree of legalism, workspace righteousness, which either means they're not in Christ or they're infants in the faith. He turns from talking to that group, the weak Christians, those who are weak in conscience. And he admonishes those who are strong, those who have strong consciences, those who understand Christian liberty, those who understand that they shouldn't call sin what the Bible does not call sin, those who understand that Christ is interested in liberating us from sin and legalism, not subjecting us to it. Paul turns his attention toward this group. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. When we are around weak brothers and sisters in the faith, we should bear that in mind and consider them. That's what Paul is saying. Don't forget that there are weak people. Don't forget that there are flaky people. Don't forget them. Don't walk all over them. Don't treat them like they're ignorant because they don't enjoy the liberties that you enjoy. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining at that place, drinking that drink in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? Some things are sins for others that aren't sins for us. And it has to do with a person's heart. And so if I am around, say, someone who believes drinking is absolutely a sin all the time, and I have a drink around that person, and they are strengthened to have a drink too, and they feel guilty afterwards, Scripture calls me guilty of sin against that brother. And against Christ, as we will see, because I have not considered someone else's conscience. I read verse 10 again and continue, For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? Verse 11, For through your knowledge... He who is weak is ruined. This is where knowledge puffs up. I'm better than you. I get to live according to a different standard than you. God loves me more so I can get away with more. Knowledge puffs up. Through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The brother for whose sake Christ died. Don't think less of him because he doesn't enjoy the liberties you enjoy. Don't think less of her because she doesn't enjoy the liberties you enjoy. You know you're not sinning, but they don't know that. They haven't come to that understanding yet. Don't let your knowledge, your knowledge is correct, 
you really aren't in sin, but don't let that get the best of you. Don't forget to love. Christ died for that brother or sister. Don't leave them behind. Love, love that person. Edify that person instead of just showing off in front of them. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, they think, you call yourself a Christian? I can't believe you live that way. And then the door is shut and you have no opportunity to edify that person. Right? Their conscience, when it is weak, you sin against Christ because Christ cares more about how we treat people than He does about us enjoying every liberty we have in Him. You get that, right? Sometimes it is good to forego certain liberties we have because we care about the good of others. I feel like that message isn't going to fly in the United States of America. All freedom, all the time. Freedom, freedom at every expense. And I think, I think the Bible disagrees. That we can voluntarily give up some freedoms for the good of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? Now, republic freedom is probably a different story. The freedom of one nation without the rule of other nations. Republic freedom. Right? Many forms of legal freedom are good. But here I think Paul is talking about voluntary giving up of certain freedoms for the good of others. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again. Paul? Paul, who says this, probably had, he's a Jew, probably had a good ham sandwich. All right? I don't know if they had sandwiches. He probably ate pork. He got on to Peter because Peter was eating pork with a group of Gentiles. You remember this? Peter was eating pork with a group of Gentiles and enjoying himself, and then the Jews came over. Oh, no, I can't do that. And Paul got on to him for it. <laughs> yeah. But Paul probably enjoyed some pork. Yet he said, if, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again. You mean it's possible for us to, to give up stuff we like? Yeah. So that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Can you tell what the operative word is in verse 13? It's the second word there. It starts with an I. has two letters. If. If food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again. That means if food does not cause my brother to stumble, I will, I will eat meat. If is the operative word. And remember Paul's trajectory as he's moving toward this argument. What did he start out doing? Admonishing those who are weak to become strong. And so if we, we think about the first part of this passage with the second part here where Paul's admonishing the strong, like, don't undercut your brother's conscience. If we consider that, it means our first priority should be making our brothers and sisters strong so that we can all enjoy life in Christ together. Christ who redeems us, buys us from darkness and legalism and sin, and liberates us from darkness and legalism and sin. 
so that we have a church that doesn't have one mature person in the faith, but many. And when a new believer comes in, we are discipling that person to make that person strong in the faith so that there is no offendedness, which Paul has gotten at in 1 Corinthians. So that there is no bickering. So that we are concerned about the preferences and expectations of God rather than men, and we are concerned about that together. So that we are unified in heart and in mind. Maturity is what causes this. And Paul's hope, I believe, is that all Christians in the church come to the same understanding. In fact, I think he said that in chapter 1. Come to the same understanding. Be of one mind. Be mature in the faith. And then the liberties are there for us to enjoy together. So Christian liberty is not without its limitations. We are in our liberty to raise those up who are weak, edify them, because we love them more than we love our own knowledge. Amen and amen. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for everything you do. Thank you for meeting us in this place. Thank you for causing your spirit to work in us. Thank you for this passage of Scripture. Teach us, Lord, how to balance our knowledge with love for others in your church, love for our brothers and sisters in the faith, such that we are edifying them. Teach us wisdom. Teach us wisdom, which is knowledge and love. Lord, we love you. We thank you for everything you do. And in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.